0: Thanks Alec, Uh, great to have uh, that word read for us, uh, both uh, the one that Michael brought us from Genesis where we're going to camp out and that one from John chapter 1 as well. Now tonight we are starting a series and the series we're starting is on the Old Testament and we have a resource for you that looks like this. Okay, You might have seen these set of pictures underneath our Bible reading slides. If you look for it down the bottom, generally there will be a little blue box that comes across and tells you where to find our reading in our Bible overview. Now these are on the back table, love for you to grab one of these as, an, as a guide for this series. Uh, tonight we're starting off with our first picture and we're looking at, Revel, at Genesis sorry Genesis chapter 1 and uh, we're going to um, start with the, uh, with the creation story. I'm going to pray for us that we might buckle up. There's lots of fun stuff in here. Now, can I remind you that there is a Q and A time at the end? Um, I suspect you'll have some questions and we'll make use of that tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is living and active. We pray tonight that we might hear it afresh and understand who you are as the creator. Come now by your Holy Spirit and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and you go, fantastic, we're going to spend the whole of the next term doing an Old Testament series. Wow, awesome. Why would you do that? Why would we have an Old Testament series for a whole term? Can't we just dip into it for a night and then let us be released? Well, my answer to that question is this. This is why we should have an Old Testament series. Now, you're going, what on earth has this got to do with anything? This poster is for Avengers Infinity Wars. Now, in order to watch this movie, you need to have watched a few other movies. Is that right? How many other movies? Sorry, two or or three. Um, Twenty- I have reliably been informed that the number is 22. Now, I might be wrong. You guys can come and find me at morning. I mean, at supper tonight. Tell me that I'm wrong. But here's the thing. Why do we want to watch 22 movies before we watch this movie? Because we want to know the backstory for the characters. Because we want to understand the thread plots. Because we want to arrive at this end game filled up with the whole universe of expectations that are there in movie after movie. Now, why do an Old Testament? Well, an Old Testament series will set us up for the end game of the Bible, which is Jesus. And if we read the previous chapters, books of the Old Testament, you'll arrive at the wonderful awesomeness that is the New Testament, knowing the characters, seeing the thread lines, and being able to enjoy the wonder that is the New Testament. Now, here's the cool thing. How long does it take to watch those 22 movies? Sorry? A long time. It's more than 48 hours, I'm reliably informed. Okay, now here's the awesome thing. Some of you have watched all of those movies prior to watching this movie. And my comment would be, if we're willing to put 48 hours into preparing for a movie, how much time have we spent looking at the Old Testament? I would love to encourage you. That the Old Testament is awesome. And we're going to have a great time. I want to suggest four reasons why it's good to look at the Old Testament. The first thing is, I want to give you this timeline of the Bible so that we can see the big picture of the Bible. The big picture of the Bible moves from creation all the way through to new creation at the end, from Genesis to Revelation. There is a narrative story that goes from creation to new creation. I want you to get that big picture. I want you to see the unity of the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament sets up an expectation for a king to come. The New Testament tells us who it is. Who is it? Good answer. If in doubt, the answer is always you judge correctly. So I want you to see the unity of the Old and the New Testament together. Then I want you to know that there are units in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is made up of different types of literature, So we have law, we have narrative, we have writings, and we have prophets. And if you look closely at your overview of the Bible, you will see all the books of the Old Testament laid out according to what type of literature they are. They're all different color-coded here underneath the timeline. More than that, I want you to see the flow from one of these pictures to the next. I want you to understand how the Old Testament moves. And here's the thing I didn't know for years and years. Did you know that the books of the Old Testament, as they appear in the Bible, are not chronological? In other words, they're not arranged in the order that they happen. Did you know that? If you didn't know that, then what you will find in my little timeline here is all the books of the Bible arranged as best I can in the order that they happened. Does that make sense? So that should become a really helpful resource for you as you're trying to understand the way the Old Testament works. So we get an Old Testament story, how do we make sense of it? How do we make sense of it? See, when uh, people get really angry at Christians for offering comments on morality, generally what we get is, yeah, but you still eat prawns, don't you? Has anyone had this moment? Is anyone aware at all of what we're talking about? There are some bits in the Old Testament that talk about food regulations where the Old Testament people of God are told not to eat um, crusty little shellfishy things, which prawns are included. And so, someone would say, Ha, ah, you read your Bible, do you? You want to tell us how to live well? I bet you still eat prawns. And you go, I do eat prawns. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. It's not true, but it's not true because they haven't read the Bible the way it should be read. There are three steps that we want to take. And um, guys, you better write this down because these are really important. There's going to be a test afterwards. No, no, no. But here's three words, and I'll try and explain them as we go. What we need to do, first of all, is a thing called exegesis. What's exegesis? Exegesis is putting our binoculars on and seeing what does this text say. Then we need to do a thing called hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? We need to work out what does it mean. We have to wrestle with it and understand what it means. And then thirdly, we need to do homiletics, which is going, what should I do with it? Should I really stop eating prawns? Hang around for the conclusion to this exciting thing in Acts chapter 10. Um, What we want to see is that there's a number of steps to make sense of the Old Testament. We don't just read it and do it. We've got to work hard. Here's some questions that will help us understand these hermeneutics thing. What we need to do, first of all, is we need to work out what type of writing is this? What type of writing is this? If it says in the Bible, someone says to you, do you believe the Bible is literally true? You go... Yeah. And they say, but yeah, I read in the Old Testament, it says, God says that he will hide us under the cover of his wings. Do you believe that? Does God have wings? You kind of go, oh, I'm not really sure what I think about that. But here's the thing. It occurs in a psalm, right? It's, It's a picture of God's care. So in the song, it says that God will hide us under the shelter of his wings. That is a true statement. God really does care for us. He will protect us, but it doesn't imply that God literally has wings. You see, we have to understand what kind of writing it is. Does this make sense? So first thing, what kind of writing is it? Uh, We want to say, what does it clearly say? Sometimes we get so carried away with trying to interpret it, we don't read what's actually there. What did the author intend The Old Testament was written a long time ago, you may be surprised to learn. It was written before Jesus. In some cases, some parts of it will have been written 1,500 years before Jesus. So that gives us a text in some places that will be 3,500 years old. That is a very different world to a mobile phone carrying up at night, playing on the internet, We're a million miles away from the world of the original reach. So what we want to ask is, what did the author originally intend? What does the context tell us? So we've got a passage that looks a bit hard. What we should go is, what does the next passage say? What about the one before that? We want to expand out our scope and try and make sense of the difficult part by looking at the context of the verses around, maybe the chapters around, and maybe even the whole book. Context will help us make sense. Fifthly, what theological themes feature here? In other words, what is this trying to tell me about God? Sixthly, how does this point us to Jesus? If Jesus is the most important thing that the Old Testament and the New Testament are about, how do we understand and see Jesus in the text? There's some ways that we'll wrestle with it to help make sense of it, and I hope to show you some of that tonight. But why would you go to all that trouble? Why all this hermeneutics? Well, because the God who is actually there, the God who is really there, has chosen to make himself known. God wants to be known. And there's at least two, I've pulled up three singers, at least two ways that he has made himself known. He's made himself known in creation. Now, does anyone like watching the sun come up? I think it's awesome. Does anyone like looking at clouds or going out in nature? I love all that stuff, right? And when I'm out there, I go, God, you're awesome. And that's a way that God speaks to us. Have a look at Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. God speaks through creation. He can speak through dreams and he can speak to you directly, but he will also speak very assuredly through his word, the Bible. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We want to go to all that effort because God has spoken to us. You can't know Jesus by looking at the clouds. So what do we find in Genesis chapter 1? What, What does it actually say? Let's do the hard work in the text. Now, for our life groups this week, I gave them a copy of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, chapter 3. And I asked them to go through and underline and circle different parts of the passage. Show the things that repeat, show the things where God's speaking, etc. Now, you can't read that up on the screen, but I want you to understand this is the whole of the chapter, and I want you to see in overview what's going on here. So when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we see order. Order. It says the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the... You guys are catching the pattern. The seventh day. So there's order. There is also patterns throughout. It says God says, and then he said it, and then it was good. There is a pattern repeated throughout this particular account. Then there is also a high point. What's the high point of the whole of the first chapter? What's the bit that everyone goes, wow, that's amazing? Creation of people. Man and women are the pinnacle, the most important part of the whole chapter. And that's this bit here in red. Then we see God in all his power. God creates by speaking. He is amazingly powerful. So the question becomes, what type of writing is this? Is this a history? Well, not necessarily Is it a poem? Well, it has more in common with a poem because we see this order and this pattern, this repetition, this shaping, this form. We see that this is a pretty unique chapter in the Bible. There aren't too many parts of the Bible like it. It's a unique and beautiful chapter with a very specific purpose to tell us about the creation of the world. Now, I wanted to do, uh, I said uh, this morning, in the two-hour version of this sermon, which you're not going to get tonight. Can I hear a sigh of relief? Ah, thank you. Okay, in the two-hour version of this sermon, what I would do is I would bring you up to speed with a whole bunch of different accounts of how the ancient people talked about the world coming to be. I talked to you about the Babylonians, Enuma Elish the origin story of the universe, or I could tell you about the Egyptian story of how the universe came about, or the Greek story of how the universe came about. And they're weird. They're really weird. Now, you guys have probably heard about the rainbow serpent, haven't you? Okay, great. You might know that story. That's an Aboriginal story. Here's what I want you to note: When you look at other ancient accounts of how the world began, it is chaotic and it is messy. If you look at the other creation accounts, then inevitably there are multiple gods or spirits. Okay, In the Babylonian one, Tiamat and, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the other one. Anyway, two gods, um, they kind of come together and have a bit of a wrestling match, and then uh, 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 other gods are born, and then they get swallowed, and then other gods are born, and they cut open the belly of the other one, and It's carnage. In the Greek one, you've got gods giving birth and then stealing other people's, other gods' wives and then sleeping with them and then killing other ones. It's carnage. In the Egyptian one, you've got frogs, male frog spirit things and female snake spirit things and they come together. It's carnage. What happens in these original stories of the the universe is that they come together and they procreate except for in the aboriginal one where um, the serpent goes looking for its tribe right where's my tribe but in these other ones these gods these spirits come together and basically have babies and this is kind of how the universe starts where does mankind fit in these accounts in the aboriginal story as uh, the serpent goes wandering people already exist and so they kind of travel along and find where the serpent has been. But for all the others, people are an afterthought. They aren't the most important thing. They aren't the pinnacle. They're just, in fact, in the Babylonian one, what happens is one of the gods is cut in two as a sacrifice. His blood falls on the ground and someone goes, let's make some people out of that so that they'll serve us. Now, I tell you this because this Hebrew account, this account in the Bible, is weird It is so unusual versus all the other accounts of how the universe came into being. And I want to show you why it's weird and why it's different. What do we learn about creation in this account? Well, first thing we find is that creation didn't start with a bang. It started with a voice. It started with a voice. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. It comes about because God speaks. There is not a bang. There is not a battling. Gods aren't wrestling here. There aren't multiple gods. There aren't tremendous forces, a good force and a bad force having a barney. That's not what's going on. There is no battle here. In fact, the text says, That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and empty. It it just speaks of peace and quiet and calmness. That is not chaos, not a disaster like the other stories. We see that it's not bad. We're told that's funny, isn't it? I've only heard this for the first time, don't worry. But hey, creation's not bad. No, no, no. I'm trying to tell you it's not evil, right? It's, it's, it's not bad. It's actually good. In verse 4, it says the light was good. Uh, in verse 10, it says God saw that it was good. In verse 12, it says God saw that it was good. In verse 18, it says God saw that it was good. In verse 21, it says God saw that it was good. In verse 25, it says God saw that it was good. And then just for drum roll, come with me to Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made, and it was? Oh, it's a trick. It's a change to the pattern. It says it was very good. The creation is good. It is not bad, and it is not a byproduct. It's not the accident. So when the serpent goes across the the landscape, by mistake, by accident, he makes water holes and ridges and mountains, right? The creation is not a byproduct. It is the intentional word of God creating a beautiful universe, And so God rests afterwards because he intended to. It also tells us that creation is not a God. You you might be surprised to see in verse 14 that it's not until day four that the sun and the moon are created. Can you see that? Look at verse 14. Day four, the sun and the moon are created. Now, they are worshipped by so many ancient people, but here they're just lights for the sky. You don't worship creation. Because they're made for a purpose by a God. What do we learn about the animals? What do we learn about animals in this account? They are not worthless. Animals are actually given a purpose in this account. In verse 22, we see that God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the watery seas and the, um, and the birds to fill the sky. God blessed them. They are not worthless. They are worthy of the blessing of God. They're not just passing away. Man and woman will rule over the fish of the sea. And they are not random. They are all given their places to live, whether it's the sky, the earth, or the sea. All of them have their place, and they are not random. But it's important to note they're not gods either. Even though people throughout history have worshipped animals, what does this account tell us about mankind? We are not monkeys. How do I know that? How do I know that we're not monkeys? Well, we are told we are told in verse 24 and God said, "Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind." This is day number 6. But the land is filled with animals first, and then God says that he will create mankind. It is only mankind who bear the image of God. We are not mistakes. God entrusts his image to men and women to rule and serve his creation. Only men and women are given this role. They are the pinnacle of creation. We are not mistakes. We're not morality makers. In other words, we don't get to say what we do. God gives us a task. We are supposed to rule over the fish of the sea, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. We've got a task. God has given us, as the pinnacle of creation, something to do. And guess what? We're not gods either. So what about God? What do we learn about God in this first chapter of Genesis? Well, we learn that God has no origin. Now, there's a question that comes in every primary school class at church, in every scripture class, and the question is what? What's the question in every class? Sorry? Who made God? Thank you, Owie. that is exactly right. Who made God? And um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I and mean, You might have had this question yourselves. Um, has anyone been watching Lego Masters? Come on, yes, awesome, right? In Lego Masters, what you do, okay, is you go into a big room that is filled with Lego and you create something. Fantastic, you have 15 hours to do it or something ridiculous, but go do it. So stuff exists and you make stuff from it, okay? And so we naturally, we look at everything around us and we go, this came from that, this came from that. And so when we go, there's a God, we go, that's fine, Where did God come from? That's a perfectly natural question. The answer is, God has no origin. Have a look with me what it says here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What makes God God is that he is uncreated. He is the only unmade one. Who made God is the right question. The answer is no one, and we go, yeah, but... The reason we go, yeah, but, is because no one else is God. Everything else comes from something else. Only God has no origin. God also has here no obligation. There's nobody forcing God's hand. There's no battle. There's no uh, wrestling match between good and evil. God just wonderfully, freely, beautifully chooses to create. Can you see how different that is to these other ancient accounts? God's under no obligation. He just speaks creation because he wants to bring glory to Jesus, his son. There's no opposition. It just says there that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's peace and quiet, not chaos and disorder. God has no origin, no obligation, and no opposition. And there is no evil at this point because everything is good. We can even say everything is good. Thank you. Very good. Everything is awesome. It is very awesome, according to the scripture in 131. This is the only true God. And why do I reckon that this is a true account of the universe? Because the rest of it sounds like angry people making a story about angry people making the world. Right? The only one that has no obligation, no pressure, only power. How does he do it? Not with thunder. Not by splitting open his barely. Not by... What does he do? He speaks, it's effortless, it's complete, it's beautiful, it's ordered, it has pattern, it has purpose. This is an account without peer in the ancient world. Do you see? It's beautiful and it's unique. This says to me that we are looking at the only true God. Now, I want to think with you about what it means to believe this to believe that this is what happened. I want to tell you that there are two choices you have. You can go with a thing called blind chance, which is I'm with the physics guys and I've written off God. There's no place for God in this world. Or you can go with a universe that is richly purposeful. That's the one that God created. What does it mean to go with blind chance? Well, it probably means that you're an angry atheist. To give you an idea of what this feels like, um, recently, uh, a friend put up a post about the Israel Falao thing, and uh, a, a friend of his, friend of his, put up this response on the uh, on the Facebook. I'm shocked and disgusted by this Facebook message. As an atheist, I believe that we are all created equal on this planet, no matter what you race or sexual orientation. This opinion of yours is out of form and only makes me hate organized religion even more. Can I just let you know, team, this person has failed atheist class. Here's what it means. If you don't want the Bible's account of creation, that's fine. But you do not get to say that all people are created equal. They're not created. They're accidents of genetics, aren't they? Nobody is created equal. That is a profoundly Christian basis. this guy, thanks for playing. You didn't win in understanding the world that you say you're a part of. Blind chance is horrible. And I want to show you how horrible it is if you truly believed what the atheists say that they believe. Let's have a crack at applying what we've learned. And what I'm going to do is I'm I'm going to compare the blind chance answer with the biblical worldview. Now, Kara and I were talking about this before, and she said, no one really is an angry atheist, right? They're, they're, that, that, we don't know lots of people who are angry atheists. Well, and my reflection would be, the people who make culture around us are. The people who are the journalists, the people who are the filmmakers, the people who control power, there are angry atheists around us. And what they will do is they will speak to us and say, you're stupid for believing this. Congratulations, I'm telling you tonight. You're very silly if you believe that God created the universe. I want to show you how bad an option it is to go with blind chance and why it's beautiful to believe and trust that God created the universe. Here's some questions. Let's take this for a walk. When stuff happens in our life, our question is why? Why did that happen? Why did this terrible thing happen? Blind chance has no answer. There literally is no purpose to the universe, there is no meaning, there is no answer. We would say God alone knows. And we might weep, we might rail against God, but God knows he has a purpose in the universe. We might ask this question, am I worthless? If you go with an empty universe that's filled only with physics and DNA, then my question would be to you, are you strong? Good. Squash someone else and pass your DNA on. That's all the empty universe has got to offer you. Pass it on. But it's appalling, isn't it? We would say, God made you and he loves you and you are infinitely precious. How can you treat them that way? This, this is where we look at the world and we go, how could somebody do this to that person? And again, that the empty universe has nothing to say. Why would I care about you? I'm just trying to pass on my DNA. In a big, vast, empty universe, am I strong? Yes, we'll crush someone else and get on with it. But when we look at injustice in the world, we ask, hang on, each individual person, bears the image of God, is precious because they are created by him. It is not right that we mistreat one another, and the only way to know that is if we're the precious, purposeful creation of a loving God. Why care about the environment? Well, I'd ask you, are you surviving, O DNA carrier? Good, get on with it. Don't worry about anyone else, just crush them. No one lives like this, right? But there's no answer. There's no morality in a big, empty, chanceless universe. What we would say is God entrusted the environment to our care. To fill it and subdue it, we must be people who care for the environment because God entrusted it to us. What about should we work 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Well, are you eating? Are you providing? Great. No problems, that's all the empty universe has got to say. But we say God rested on the seventh day. It's baked into our humanity. We must rest because God rested. Why do we feel so useless when we're unemployed? The empty universe can't tell you anything. But the reason it's so crushingly devastating to be unemployed is because responsible, meaningful work is baked into our humanity. And you'll only find that in the account of Genesis chapter 1. What about why do bad things happen? The empty universe doesn't care and has no answer. And I would say to you, come back next week and we'll tell you why bad things happen. Well, that's awesome. But what about science? Doesn't science just disprove all of this Genesis stuff? Now, I got a lovely Care and Connect card this morning when someone said, don't make science an enemy of the Bible. I'm not going to make science an enemy of the Bible, but I want you to think about science. Uh, Back in the 11th century, a guy called Anselm of Canterbury said, I have faith seeking understanding. And what he meant was, if God created the universe, he must have made it in an ordered way. Because it's ordered, because I believe that, I'm going to go and look for the order that God has already put into the universe. Do you see this? Faith seeking understanding in the world. When we get to uh, the, uh, uh, the 18th century, A guy called Perry Simon Laplace does a whole bunch of geometry and and maths and physics and works out how um, planets orbit the universe, writes an incredible paper, takes it to Napoleon and Napoleon goes, hey mate, I've heard, mate, I'm sure he said mate. Anyway, he said, I've heard, I've heard that you don't have God mentioned at all in this whole science paper that you've put together. And he famously apparently said, I have no need for that hypothesis. Science had got to the point where they were able to explain the way the universe worked without any gaps, and so they said, we don't need God. We can do fine without him. And my response would be, how did that work out for us as a society? How did it work out saying we can run society without God? Well, I think it looks like this picture. Do you know the scream? See, there's a problem today in our real world. Have a listen to this quote from Pascal. All of man's misfortunes come from one thing, which is not knowing how to sit quietly in a room. Now, that may or may not catch your attention, but what he's saying is there is an anxiousness in our souls that doesn't find satisfaction in science. See, Genesis achieves all of God's good goals for it. God wanted to communicate that he made the world, purposed the world, crowned the creation with people. That's what he wanted to do, and it works. Science describes the world without satisfying the soul. And I' would ask you, does it really feel like science has solved the restlessness in our souls? It doesn't feel like that to me. One does not simply know the meaning of life. So how does this connect to the New Testament? Well, we had that beautiful reading from John chapter one. I want you to have a listen to how much it sounds like Genesis chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is the Word who is with God in the beginning? Thank you, Peter. The answer is Jesus. Who is the Word who is with God in the beginning? How does it connect to the New Testament? The New Testament picks up the creation story and says that the word that was spoken is the word that comes in flesh. Jesus is with God at the beginning. So what's our take home? What do we do with all of this? What should we do? Well, first thing, we should wonder, why is it not like this beautiful picture today? Come back next week. Secondly, we should walk in the patterns that we can see in Genesis. Love the creation Honour the Creator. Yeah? Love the creation. Honour the Creator. Rest on the seventh. Find a way to live in the pattern that is here in Genesis. Thirdly, we need to worship the living God for the goodness of the creation that he has made. What I want you to do over this Old Testament series is to find yourself. And I want you to find yourself by finding yourself in God's big story. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and great and mighty. You spoke and created from nothing. You brought things that didn't exist into being. And we thank and praise you that together with your Son, the Word, you spoke and you created. Father, we thank you that you have placed this creation around us as the perfect environment for us to live. And we pray that we might honour and thank you with all our hearts. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Easy, hey? Genesis chapter 1, no problems. Any questions that might arise from that? Peter, Uh, can someone, thank you, Annabelle. That's great, yeah, thank you. Peter, you have a question for me? I don't think the translation in the word was created is good. The translation is wrong. Perfect. Fantastic, Peter. Um, We're looking at a word in our NIVs that says good, and you say a better translation is perfect. I'm confident that at the finish of God's creation, it was perfect. That's a helpful comment. Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, There was nothing left to do, which is why God was able to rest. So perfect is great. It's really good. Yeah, another question. Up the back. Romy, Just the questions about the animals. Yes. You know, in the beginning, there was wild animals. The lion and the lamb lived together. So when did this animal-eating animals start? That's a really good question. Um, we are told in the passage here um, that every seed plant, uh, seed-bearing plant will be food. Can I find it? Um, Yeah, there'll be be food for you. And yes, we seem to have the impression that every green plant is for the animals. And your question is, when did animals start eating animals? And my response would be after Genesis chapter 3. So God says that if you eat of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, come back next week, it's going to be great, um, you will die. Nothing died, it seems, here prior to the fall. And so no one was being eaten. Because nothing was dying. That's my guess. Okay. And so it's not until after the fall that we start to see um, death enter in, and that would lead to animals eating animals, I believe. But you're right. The picture in the Old Testament of the beautiful future is a lion lying down with a lamb. No plug for our lamb night at all. Okay. No plug there at all. But a lion lying down with a lamb. Okay. And that would be dangerous for the lamb. Unless there's a time in the future where they don't eat each other anymore. So you're right. There was a time before when they didn't, and it seems like there's a time in the future when they won't either. Really good pick up. But I think it happens when death enters the world, when sin enters the world in chapter three. Good. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Megan. Okay. So um, your talk made me think, so like for the atheist example, like about a lot of kids at my school that are atheists um and the way that you explain creation it was explained very beautifully and um it just provides like so many answers so my question is is why do atheists want to be atheists you know like be like in the dark and because you said like as humans we have that anxiousness to want to know like our purpose and our meaning so why would they continue to believe in something that gives them no answer? I think the first answer is a great question. first answer is I'd be uniquely unqualified to know, wouldn't I, as a minister <laughs> in the church, right? So I, I can't know for sure, and I would want to respect people who hold that view enough to say, I'd need to listen to your story first. Okay. So even, even when I get fired up as a preacher, I still want to go, Why, what's led you to a point where you would say that you're an atheist? First of all, I don't believe that there are many atheists. I think there are a whole bunch of people who are angry or hurt. And, and amazingly, atheists aren't generally, um, oh, I've decided today that there's no God. Generally, it's the pain of hurt and anger towards God that leads me to reject God, which makes me a... But, but my thing with that is, that's actually more about God than about not God. Do, do you see? The, the other thing I'd observe is, um, I think atheists live a lie. I think they trade off all of the warm feelings of living in a universe that's created by a God. They trade that. They live off that. That's real. But they tell themselves intellectually, I don't need that. And so they're not actually living authentically as atheists. And that's what I was trying to show you in those comparisons. If you really go down the atheist line, it is a terrible, empty, scary universe. And more than that, if you reject God because you think he's terrible, how could this suffering happen in the world? I would say, fine. Let's agree I'm an idiot. I believe that there's a God who's in charge. I might have to take up some problems with him, right? But you've decided to reject God because there are problems in the universe. Okay, let's assume you're right. Now I'm living in a universe with problems but no one to blame. Do you see? You don't remove problems in the universe when you decide to be an atheist. All you end up with is a terrible universe with no one to blame except You. Now, who wants that, really? So I think the atheist endeavour fails. It doesn't help me. It doesn't provide me with meaning. It leaves me in a very scary universe. But thank you for the question. It's great. Yes, Jeanette. Perhaps the reason why so many people are angry atheists is because maybe they've had such a bad representation of God through Christ- people who have claimed to be Christians and have been so judgmental and lack so much empathy that why would they want to believe in a God who, has, who is represented as having so little empathy? Sure. So terrible people have done a bad job of presenting God and so we reject him on the basis of the people who represent him. I think that's fine. Uh, the, the, the challenge is... Is it intellectually satisfying? I, I, I just—I'll try and do something difficult for a sec. No, no, no. no. But I, I just want you—I just want you guys to come on a journey with me for one second. Okay, just think with me like this. Okay, if God only exists because I'm stupid enough to believe him, right? He only exists in my mind. He doesn't actually exist. Then, as an atheist, when I reject your stupid God, I don't change the universe, right? I'm just saying you're a duffer. So far, so good, right? You're just a duffer. But if God is really there, he doesn't exist because I believe in him or not. Are you with me? And so even if his representatives are idiots, and I say I don't like the idea of God because all Christians are insensitive jerks, you haven't actually worked out whether there is a God or not. You've just identified a group of people who lack empathy. Are you with me? It actually doesn't stop God existing if Christians are jerks. It just gives you a reason to feel angry at Christians. It's not intellectually satisfying if you really want to pursue this to say Christians are terrible ambassadors of God, therefore he can't exist. You can't change his reality based on whether or not Christians are good or bad. Are you with me? Now, gee, I hope we'd be good ambassadors for Jesus. Lord, forgive us when we've been arrogant jerks. But you can't make God disappear if all Christians are idiots. Are you with me? Okay, that was a terribly dark place to get to. Uh, is there any other questions, other things that you want to ask? Yes, go. Ahead. Um, this is more of a personal one, but I was just wanted to know like how exactly to respond because I'm often surrounded by people who say they're Christians but that really act like it, and. I just wanted to ask how you could respond to those kind of people and help them maybe. Yeah, so they'd say they're Christians but they don't act like it. How should we engage in that way? I think it's really tough, Sky, and it's really wearing if you're trying to be personally a person of faith and the people who claim faith look terrible around you, right? And my only response would be, first of all, let's pray for them. God, help them to be authentic Christians even though they're struggling today. Lord, forgive them when they hurt me and when my heart is crushed because people who name Jesus don't live that way. And thirdly, can you help me, God, to live an authentic example? So if everyone around me is failing at doing this, can you help me at least to live authentically as a Christian? Does that make sense? Thank you. Yeah, great. Jeanette. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. So so as as broken examples, we come and confess our sins because we need to be here. Helpful, helpful comment, helpful comment. Um, I'm going to stop it there, but you guys are going to come and find me at supper, please, or write them on your Care and Connect cards, which we're about to do, and uh, you can ask me some more questions. After we've done our Care and Connect cards, I'm going to lead us in the Lord's Supper.